Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Welcome to episode one of four of the Practice Changing Updates the Evolving Hemophilia Treatment Landscape podcast series. I am Dr. Angela Wyand, Clinical Associate Professor of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at the University of Michigan. I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Guy Young. In this episode, we will discuss recent practice changing updates in replacement and non-replacement therapies in hemophilia A. We will present key clinical trial data and discuss the safety and efficacy of these newly approved therapies. Recently reported evidence and its impact on ongoing patient care will also be assessed. So to start, um, I'm going to be speaking first on um, replacement and non-replacement therapies for hemophilia A. As probably most of you are aware, um, the treatment of hemophilia A has really evolved over time. Uh, looking back to the 50s when the only thing we really had was plasma, um, you know, then in the 60s, cryoprecipitate, um, followed by PCC and APCC treatments. Um, and then in the 70s, really um, a big you know, shift in treatment with uh, the development of plasma-derived factor VIII concentrates. Um, also in the 70s was uh, the um, DDAVP. Uh, and then later in the 80s, luckily, after there were issues with um, viruses in the plasma-derived products, um, we had viral inactivation in the mid-80s um, for our products. But it really wasn't until the early 90s um, that we started to have availability of recombinant factor VIII products. Um, and there has been evolution in this as well, um, with second and third generation factor VIII products coming in the early 2000s. Um, and then in the mid 2000 teens, um, extended half-life factors um, being approved and available. We know that then, um, you know, we've also had uh, the development of non-factor products, um, including uh, mimetics, as well as rebalancing therapies um, against our body's natural anticoagulants um, in the 2020s. Um, and those products are either still in development um, or some recently approved. So thinking about factor VIII replacement therapy in hemophilia A, I think we all are you know, aware that there are pros and cons to the use of factor replacement. Um, you know, I think the big thing, a big pro is that we really are replacing what the patient is missing. Um, we have the most experience with these products because we have a long history of using these. Um, going back decades, we know that they are relatively safe, although uh, we do need to be aware that with all of these products, there is the risk of development of autoantibodies and inhibitors. Um, we know that we can get peak levels um, into the normal range um, and can follow these levels and know really where our um, levels of factor eight um, and hemostatic control are. We're able to give extra doses and we're able to use the same product for prophylaxis as well as to treat bleeds or to perform surgical procedures or things that need extra hemostatic efficacy. There are cons as well, um, and I think our patients are probably even more aware of these than we are. Um, they do require intravenous administration, which can be quite difficult, especially in our youngest pediatric patients. Um, they have required two to four times per week administration, uh, which really is quite a large burden of treatment, especially when you think about that intravenous administration. So these things together can make it difficult for our patients to adhere to their treatment uh, plan. And many young patients, 
usually our youngest patients that have difficulty with intravenous administration um, need ports, which come with their own risks, including infection and thrombosis. Um, we know that factor levels do fluctuate um, and that uh, when the levels come down at the end of the treatment interval, um, when patients are at those trough levels, there is bleeding risk at that point. Um, so these are all things uh, to take into consideration when we're thinking about whether patients should be receiving factor replacement therapies versus um, some of these newer products. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, even when we think about factor eight replacement products, there has been evolution of factor eight products over time um, back in late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, we had plasma-derived clotting factors. Um, and then, as I mentioned, in the 1990s um, were the first recombinant clotting factors. Um, and this was really very exciting, um, given the fact that there had been widespread viral contamination and recombinant products really eliminated this potential for transmission of bloodborne pathogens. Um, then, you know, Many of you are probably aware, you know, as we recognize this really high burden of treatment on patients, um, many companies looked to develop products that had more extended half-life that could be dosed less frequently. Um, and so a lot of these extended half-life clotting factors were developed. Um, and um, they did lead to, for some patients to fewer infusions um, with similar outcomes to the standard half-life factor products. Um, similar to the extended half-life, you know, they were safe products um, other than the risk of inhibitors um, and are effective for surgery, prophylaxis, um, and treatment of bleeds, but still had quite, you know, an high treatment burden, um, even with the extended half-life products that really weren't able to extend the half-life quite as long as we would have liked to. Um, and we know that patients still continue to have bleeds on these products, um, so we're not able to fully prevent arthropathy. Um, and there's also pretty significant costs associated with all of them. So um, thinking about extending the half-life of factor products still within the realm of factor replacement products, um, there has been um, a significant extension of the half-life of factor eight um, with the development of Epinus octocog alpha. Um, so Epinus octocog alpha is a very highly modified recombinant factor eight product um, that utilizes a number of different modifications to extend its half-life. So um, similar to some other extended half-life products, it has the FD uh, receptor to increase the half-life um, through that recycling pathway. There are two extend uh, molecules that also increase the half-life. Um, but probably the biggest thing is this D prime D3 domain um, that is um, present that is there basically to decouple um, the infused uh, factor eight product from the patient's endogenous VWF. Um, as we've learned that uh, VWF is really limiting the half-life of the infused factor eight um, and decoupling the factor eight that's infused from the endogenous VWF can really extend the half-life um, greater than what had previously uh, been able to be achieved. And so with this, um, in the extend one trial, um, looking at patients um, who previously been treated with factor eight products, um, they had a lead-in study where patients received um, what, you know, between themselves and their healthcare providers had been determined to be an optimal factor eight treatment regimen. Um, in the pre-study, uh, their ABR was 2.96, um, and then they entered into the study and got uh, 
standardized dosing of 50 international units per kilo once weekly of FNS Octocog, um, which actually decreased their ABR by 77% down to an ABR of 0.69 um, on once weekly prophylaxis. And obviously with this pre-study prophylaxis, um, these patients were receiving infusions much more frequently um, between two and four times a week, um, but still with much uh, less treatment burden, um, had a pretty significant decrease in their mean ABR. And um, as it expected from um, data that we had from um, earlier trials, um, with these modifications of uh, the factor eight molecule, um, there really was pretty significant extension of the half-life. So this is pharmacokinetic data uh, from the XN1 trial, which shows, um, you know, we're still achieving very high um, normal levels of factor eight after infusion um, that then uh, obviously decrease over time. Uh, but out at that seven day interval when patients are about to infuse again, um, really still are in the, um, you know, 12 to 15 percent range. Um, and patients are actually, you know, above this kind of 40 percent normal um, level uh, for over half of the week. So a much longer half-life, um, allowing for this once weekly dosing, still with troughs um, much higher than patients have been able to achieve um, with other factor eight products. Um, so looking at um, uh, some more data on Epidesoclicog Alpha, um, there was also the Extend Kids study, um, which looked at children, again, with severe hemophilia A. These were also previously treated patients, um, but they went, um, down to, um, you know, less than six years of age. It was zero to 12 years of age patients. Um, and patients, again, received the standardized dosing of 50 international units per kilo once weekly. And as you can see, uh, the median ABR was quite low at zero. Um, and the mean ABRs, um, you know, the overall was less than one. Um, six to 12 was a little bit higher and less than six was a little bit lower. Um, I, you know, would hypothesize probably due to the kind of level of activity in the patients of varying ages. Um, but really the primary uh, endpoint in the study, our primary outcome was the incidence of neutralizing antibodies to factor eight. Um, and there were no um, inhibitors that were detected with the trial. Um, it, similarly to the adult study, um, did show that um, you know, the vast majority of bleeding episodes were able to resolve with one 50 international unit per kilo injection, um, and that, um, you know, the vast majority of uh, bleeds uh, that were treated, uh, the response was rated as either excellent or good by the patients. Um, there were um, a few, two patients who had two major surgeries during the trial, um, and their hemostatic response was also deemed as excellent. Um, so overall uh, data, pretty consistent with the adult data showing um, low ABRs and good responses to uh, just one injection as far as bleeding treatment. Um, and then looking at the pharmacokinetics in children, um, most of you are probably aware that um, younger patients uh, tend to require more frequent dosing and have lower troughs um, than adults. And that is what we see here. So, uh, but again, you know, much extended half-life compared to other products, um, getting, you know, those um, normal factor levels after infusion, and then going up to day seven when patients are redosing, um, having trough levels in the um, six to seven percent uh, range. So still ending up with patients being above that 40% um, or normal level um, for a little less than half the week, um, but still, um, you know, remaining uh, quite high even towards the end of the week.
So we're going to go now to our first polling question, um, which will be about some of the things that we just discussed. Um, so which of the following are true for FNS octocog alpha? A, it is a factor eight replacement therapy. B, it is designed to decouple recombinant factor eight from endogenous VWF or von Willebrand factor and overcome the VWF imposed half-life ceiling. C, it could be provided as a once-weekly intravenous infusion. D, all of the above. Or E, none of the above. So looking at the results, um, I think everyone is brilliant um, in the audience um, with 100% of our participants um, choosing all of the above. So yes, it is a factor eight replacement therapy. Um, it has the extended half-life um, largely due to the C coupling from endogenous BWF, um, and it can be provided as a once weekly intravenous infusion. So um, moving on to kind of the next product that we wanted to talk about um, is the first um, non-replacement agent that we'll discuss this evening, um, which really, um, you know, when it was approved, um, allowed us to overcome a number of the limitations that we know are present uh, with the use of factor therapy. So we know um, that the missing protein in hemophilia A is factor eight, um, and that really the action of factor eight, um, activated factor eight, is really to bring together activated factor nine and factor 10 um, on the phospholipid membrane. And so uh, the thoughts with emesizumab, which is the first um, factor eight mimetic that has been approved, um, there are others in development, but emesizumab um, has been available for a number of years and really acts to mimic this action of factor 8a by bringing together activated factor 9 and factor 10 again on this phospholipid membrane um, to fill the role of factor 8 when it is missing. And because it is not a factor 8 molecule, um, one benefit of it is that it can be used in patients with and without inhibitors. Um, it can only be used for hemophilia A, as you would imagine. Um, it's filling the, you know, mimicking the action of factor 8, and so would only be effective in those patients that are missing factor 8. Um, its pharmacokinetics are very different than factor replacement in that there are no peaks or troughs, and you have much more steady state hemostatic coverage. Um, so you're not able to get that 100% um, factor eight equivalence, um, but you also aren't you know, dropping down to um, a lower level before you get your next dose. Um, and then additionally, one huge benefit that we've seen, especially in the pediatric population, um, is its subcutaneous dosing um, for administration. And so it doesn't require intravenous administration. Um, it can be quite helpful in avoiding um, the placement of ports that I mentioned earlier that can be challenging in our youngest patients, as well as some older patients, but uh, tends to be more of an issue in our youngest. So emesizumab has been studied in a number of different settings, um, and this is kind of a pooled analysis of long-term results from the phase three studies, um, so the HAVEN 1 through 4 trials in people with hemophilia A, um, looking at annualized bleed rates. And so as you can see here, um, this is a treatment interval over time, so um, 1 to 24 weeks all the way out to 21 to 100. 121 to 144 weeks. Um, and as you can see, kind of earlier on, the ABR is a little bit higher, um, but then as you get further out, um, it is um, quite low, less than one, um, and is pretty consistent. 
And this shows here the percentage of patients with zero um, and one to three treated bleeds, the percentage of those patients, again, um, over certain treatment intervals. And as you can see here, similar to um, a little bit higher AVR to begin with, and then dropping down to more steady lower levels, you can see here that initially um, about 70% um, in that first one to 24 weeks um, had zero treated bleeds. Um, and then the increase in was pretty steady at a higher level um, at those um, longer treatment intervals. Um, but, you know, with this, um, you know, nearly three years of follow-up, uh, these low bleeding rates are maintained. Um, and um, the emesismab is also very well tolerated um, over this longer term follow-up that has been um, done. So looking specifically at the different um, HAVEN studies, um, this is looking at patients who had zero treated bleeds um, in a number of different settings. So the very first HAVEN study um, was just done in patients with inhibitors, uh, specifically adolescents and adults uh, with inhibitors and looked at once weekly dosing uh, prophylactically and 63% of those patients had zero bleeds. Uh, the next study, HAVEN 2, again, only looked at inhibitors, but or patients with inhibitors, but went down to the pediatric ages and again, looked at once weekly dosing um, and 86% of the pediatric patients had zero bleeds. Uh, then the later studies um, looked at patients um, that didn't necessarily have inhibitors. So HAVEN 3 was a study of adolescents and adults without inhibitors um, and looked at both weekly as well as every two-week dosing um, and had 56% uh, of patients in the Q weekly um, dosing group that had zero bleeds and 60% of those in every two-week dosing group that had zero bleeds. Um, and then lastly, HAVEN 4 actually looked at every four-week dosing, um, so approximately once a month, um, and looked at adolescents and adults. These could be patients with or without inhibitors. Um, and even going out to that um, once every four-week dosing, 56% uh, of patients had zero bleeds um, over the course of, um, of the study. So this brings us to our next polling question. Um, imicizumab has been studied among pediatric patients, so ages 2 to 11 years of age, with severe hemophilia A in which of the following trials? Um, Haven 1, Haven 2, Haven 3, or Haven 4? And now there's been even more Haven trials, but just looking at those first four, Perfect. So um, HAVEN 2 is the correct answer. So the HAVEN 1 um, was patients with um, inhibitors that were adults and adolescents uh, versus HAVEN 2 was, again, patients with inhibitors, um, but was in the pediatric studies. And then HAVEN 3 um, looked at those different dosing regimens of uh, once a week and once every two weeks uh, without inhibitors. And then HAVEN 4 was looking at that uh, once every four-week uh, dosing interval. Thank you for listening to episode one of Practice Changing Updates, the evolving hemophilia treatment landscape. Please join us for episode two. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.